Well, we want to turn again in our Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Our text is verses 15 through 20. There's another great hymn that says, Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not, think about that, caring not, my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. By God's word, at last my sin I learned, then I trembled at the law I'd spurn, till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. And now I've given to Jesus everything, Now I gladly own him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. And pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Beloved, In this great series that we have been doing over these many weeks, may we never underestimate the price our Savior paid on Calvary. Verse 15, in wishing to satisfy the multitude, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort, and they dressed him up in purple. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting at him and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and put his garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Father God, again, think of how this place we find ourselves in the word of God is the most holy ground of them all. We bring ourselves again to this most difficult portion of Scripture, We have to face it straight on. And Lord, I would pray that by the anointing presence, power, and teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, that now as we come before you, that we would receive a word from you. And we know we will if our hearts are open wide. So we rejoice with expectation and promise in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11, the Bible says, As to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. What I just read emphasizes what we have been studying in Mark's gospel, primarily the cruel treatment and the sheer agony that Christ suffered on our behalf. I just say is this series offends our sensitivities, and we do come to a difficult place in the scriptures today. If there is something about this text as we think about it that brings us to tears, then so be it. Philippians 2.8 tells us that being found in appearance as a man 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Hebrews 12, 2 says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And Hebrews 12, 3 says, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Now, if the things that Christ has suffered for you and me, if that doesn't trouble your spirit, then please check your pulse. If contemplating what Christ suffered is too much for us to bear, then let's praise his name and thank him by dedicating every breath of our lives to live for him. This morning, as we pick up with verse 15, again, we read in verse 15, and wishing to satisfy the multitude, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, beloved, beyond this tyranny that we looked at of Pilate releasing Barabbas, it's that second part of verse 15 that we didn't really get to last weekend. And it is to say then at this point that Pilate's soldiers scourged the body of Jesus, and I add these two words, without mercy. Now let's refresh our memories, and if you weren't with us, this will help. All these events happened on the Jewish calendar on the 14th of Nisan. Each year when they came to that 14th day, it was the celebration of what? The Passover. As you might remember, the Jewish day actually begins in the evening as the sun is going to be setting and then goes through the next day. And on that day of the Passover that Jesus celebrated, they acquired a year-old spotless male lamb that they would have roasted and they would have eaten with bitter herbs the evening before. Now, beyond that meal of eating lamb the evening before, there would be another lamb the Lamb of God, who on that next day would shed his blood as our Lamb, our Redeemer. He would redeem those he came to save. The intense cruelty that the Lord Jesus would endure, though, went well beyond the cross. When we think about Christ's suffering, we often focus on the cross. But bear in mind, our Lord knew what was coming He would be hurt in so many ways. He would be betrayed and denied by two of his inner circle disciples, Judas Iscariot and Peter. We all know, we looked at this, that that last evening in the Garden of Gethsemane was no easy evening for our Lord. His hour of betrayal was drawing near. And as I think again about that passage, I think it's fair to say that the image we have of Jesus in that at that time in the garden, is almost of a a little boy begging his daddy, Abba, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way. And we know when we read in the text that so distraught was the Lord Jesus that evening as not only he thought about the suffering that he was going to endure But as his sweat poured from his body, his capillaries in his body exploded. And that blood was mixed with his own sweat. Think about this. That kiss. When Judas Iscariot kissed him. 
Normally it's a sign of affection, isn't it? But it wasn't that time. It was to betray the Lord Jesus. Also as well, there's Peter pulling out his sword. After all, he told the Lord, I'll never deny you. Of course, he wasn't a very good shot, was he? Glopped off Malchus's ear. And of course, Jesus puts it back. But do you remember that after they arrested Jesus, where did they first take him? To Annas. Annas, who the nation of Israel recognized as the rightful high priest. They brought him before Annas. And I was thinking that after this, they, of course, bring him to Caiaphas, the other high priest who the Romans had appointed. I mentioned this on Wednesday evening. Think about this. There, here were these two earthly high priests. And then there was another high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. We're taught that in the book of Hebrews. There were actually three high priests there. And the greatest one of them all, of course, was the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they questioned Jesus, when those scoundrels questioned our Lord, he didn't deny who he was. I am the Son of God. I am the Blessed One. I am the Messiah. And of course, when Caiaphas, the high priest, heard this, what did he cry out? Blasphemy! Oh, how could this man ever claim to be the Messiah? Oh, the Son of God. And so what did they do? They sent him off to Pilate's, as I described it, Pilate's kangaroo court. And now Jesus is before Pilate. And I want to expand, if I could, just a bit, because there's another text that we haven't considered. And if you would, please, holding your finger in Mark 15, would you turn over to John chapter 18? John chapter 18. In John chapter 18, there's a most curious verse And for many years, whenever I would read this verse, I always wondered, now what's that about? What's going on here? And it actually gets into something that illustrates the treachery that was behind what they were up to when they arrested the Lord Jesus. In John chapter 18, verse 14, we're told that Caiaphas, the high priest, was the one who had advised the Jews. Now, here's what he said. This is why I've always found it so curious. Caiaphas advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Now, at first glance, when you read that, it almost sounds theological, doesn't it? It sounds as if the high priest Caiaphas on the Passover was calling for the, as we would call it, the substitutionary atonement of one man on behalf of the people. That's how it sounds, doesn't it? And after all, the irony here is that is exactly what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ did die on behalf of the people. He did die on behalf of our sins. And so in one sense, what Caiaphas says, it sounds as if he's speaking of the Lord. But there is another clue to the treachery here, and it goes back to that man Barabbas. You might remember that Barabbas was charged of murder, that he had participated also in an insurrection, a revolt, an uprising, that apparently someone had been killed. Most likely it was a Roman who had been killed. What I'm suggesting is that the Jews had gotten themselves into trouble with the Romans. 
And so Caiaphas, thinking about this, said, you know, it would be better for one man to die than for all of us to undergo the retribution of the Romans. I mean, the Romans were powerful. They could have sent a military strike force in that could have resulted in the deaths of hundreds, if not thousands, of Jews. And so I don't think at all that Caiaphas was predicting the Lord's death or that he was thinking of substitutionary atonement. But I, was, I think that he was just thinking politically and thinking to himself, you know what, it would be better off for one man to take the heat. It would be better if the Romans just took out their revenge on just one person rather than the whole nation suffering. So here's the point. When they bring Jesus, when Caiaphas brings Jesus before Pilate, what I want you to see is that what they were really up to was to make Jesus a scapegoat. And so that's why with this insurrection, this revolt that had taken place, they say to Pilate, this guy claims to be the king of the Jews. This man, he's a part of the problem. In fact, he may be the problem. This Jesus is an enemy of the state. He's an enemy of Rome. Of course, what do we find out? Well, he's, Pilate sends him off to King Herod, and then he comes back to Pilate, and they, they can't find any cause and no case and no reason to charge Jesus for the crime of insurrection. But nevertheless, Caiaphas' wicked scheme still worked because there would be a one man who would die for the people. And so when Pilate, instead listening to the crowds, he cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 15, that second half, that difficult part, Pilate's soldiers then scourged, scourged the body of the Lord Jesus without mercy. I don't say this to be dramatic, but to be sincere, and that is, beloved, they filleted Jesus' back and body like hamburger meat put through a grinder. That whip that they used, some people believe that whip was actually three whips into one. It was made of leather or rope. It was just no ordinary whip, was it? If you look it up sometime, you'll see different descriptions of what it might have looked like. They would have put hooks and shards, even metal balls that when they would hit the body, the little metal balls would basically break through the skin, inflicting even greater damage. Every time that whip hit the Lord's back, it ripped into his back, tearing, lacerating. It ripped away his skin. It tore into his ligaments, his muscles, his bones, though not broken. When they whipped a person, and that whip would wrap around, not only hit their back, but it would wrap right around the individual's entire body. You have to understand that it wasn't just his back that was beaten. Now, there were some people that were beaten so cruelly by the Romans that they had almost become such experts of what they did that, that pe literally people's body organs would be exposed. That's how far it would cut into a person's body. What was the Roman goal? to inflict as much agonizing pain as possible. 
It is to say that the Romans and the way they did things, they didn't just give a quick and sudden death like a man being hung or at a guillotine, but the Roman method was purposely cruel and it was, I think, demonically sadistic. Interesting thing, though, in history is, do you know that the Romans would never do that, though, to one of their own citizens? They would never do that to anyone that was a citizen of their own nation. And that was because that whipping was also intended to humiliate the person in front of them. In other words, treating that person worse than even an abused animal. There's a church historian, his name was Eusebius, of Caesarea, and he recounts with vivid, horrible detail the scene of a scourging that he witnessed. He says, For they say that the bystanders were struck with amazement when they saw them lacerated with scourges, even to the innermost veins and arteries, so that the hidden inward parts of the body, both the bowels and their members, were exposed to view. Hear me today, as hard as it is, These soldiers scourged the Lord Jesus without mercy. And I say this because that is why I testify to you that there is nothing cheap about the price our Savior paid to satisfy the justice of God and to secure the gift of eternal life. Oh, we talk about salvation as a free gift, and it is. It is offered to us freely. But it came at such a high price that I have to say again, there is no such thing as cheap grace. And you think about this, unlike the patriarch Abraham, who raised his knife ready to sacrifice his own son Isaac. Of course, the angel stepped in, the angel of the Lord stopped him from doing that. But when it came to the Lord Jesus, no one stepped in. No one stepped in. I was thinking as I was working through this series, and we've talked a lot about the agony that Jesus suffered. Can you imagine the agony God the Father suffered? Because not only was his own son suffering, but the Father had to watch his son suffer. Well, in verses 16 through 20, after they scourged the body of Jesus, what did they do next? They played a cruel game to humiliate our dear, sweet Lord. The soldiers, verse 16, they took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple. It's a game. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. And look at this. They kept beating his head with a reed. And spitting at him, kneeling and bowing before him, they mocked him. They took the purple off him, and they put his garments on him, and then they led him away to crucify him. For these Roman soldiers, who had no idea really what they were doing, that this was actually the Son of God, they treated Jesus like a plaything. They thought it was funny to mock and to scoff and to humiliate the Lord. You notice, as I read, that verse 16 tells us the whole, the whole cohort of soldiers were there at this gathering. This whole battalion of mighty warriors put the Son of God on public display to shame and despise him. Verse 17, of course, says they clothed him in purple. Why? Purple's the sign of royalty. 
And of course, they're making fun of Jesus. Who was Jesus to them? What did the Roman soldiers think of Jesus? Well, they just thought, hey, he's some unfortunate Jewish man who just got in the way, and now we get to inflict him with even greater cruelty. Verse 17, as well as you know, they took that crown of thorns. They weaved probably by a nearby bush and with its thorny spikes anywhere from an inch to three inches long. Verse 18, these ignorant devils, they, I believe they laughed. I think they laughed when they said, Hail, King of the Jews. Uh, their hearts were lost. They had no idea that Jesus was king. He really was. He is king, and he's king today. But what did they do? Verse 19, the cruel game continues. They bow before Jesus, like coming before a a majestic king. But then they spit on Jesus. You think any of them would have regretted that later? I imagine so. It's nasty business to think about. But there's that little detail in the text that says, and then they took that reed, that stick, and they took turns going over to the head of Jesus and driving those thorns into his head. I think we all know by now that Jesus probably was an absolute bloody mess. That's why I say by the Spirit of God, as the book of Hebrews says, woe to that man or woman who tramples upon the foot of the Son of God and insults the Spirit of grace. Of course, verse 20 tells us that they then led him away to crucify him. There's one more passage I'd like us to consider, and it's in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you would turn there, please. 1 Peter chapter 2. Because what does this mean for all of us here today? What's this all about? Why... Why face all of this terrible news and consider it? Well, in 1 Peter 2, picking up at verse 21, hear the word of the Lord. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to the one, to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed." Oh, dear friend, verse 21, Peter tells us, he describes it this way. He says, his steps, those steps that began in the womb of the virgin mother Mary that would lead ultimately to the foot of the cross, those steps. And in those steps, verse 22, never once did he ever commit a sin. Not once. There was no deceit. There were no lies found in his mouth. Verse 23 And yet when it came time, he was brutalized by the Jews and the Gentiles. And while being so, yet he never reviled in return. They despised and they loathed him. But Jesus remained silent. This was Jesus who in the garden, do you remember? He said to that band of soldiers, hey, you know what? You, You guys, you're coming here. If I wanted to, I could call the angels. Boom, just like that. And yet he entrusted himself to the Father. Why? Why did he do this? 
because he himself, verse 24, bore our sins in his body on the cross. On the 14th of Nisan, our Lord Jesus became humanity's Passover lamb. Oh, why? Oh, for us, that you and I might die and live to righteousness. That you and I, that we would be ultimately healed by his wounds for his glory. I know I'm an imperfect sinner, but I've lived my life preaching only one gospel, a gospel that proclaims that wherever and whatever, wherever there is sin, and sin is whatever God declares it to be, I wonder about people who can laugh at Jesus and make fun of him and don't understand how precious his name is. Because every one of us in this room, hard thing to swallow, but every one of us in this room, he went to the cross for us. And the gospel does tell us that we're sinners. The gospel also compels us to repent of those sins and to turn to Christ and to believe. Why? Because in that body that he suffered, he paid the full price. And you and I, though imperfect as we still are, until we're glorified, we live in that grace, don't we? Do we have a great Savior? The next time you hear somebody use the name Jesus as a swear word, muster up the courage and look that person square in the eye and say to that individual, I'm going to tell you something about Jesus. He died for me. And I'm forgiven because of him. And don't you ever use that name that way in front of me ever again. Father, we stand amazed in the presence of our great Lord and Master and Savior. We stand amazed in the glory of our Lord. And we of all people should be thankful people. For those who have been forgiven much, we love much. And Lord, I pray that we will live for your honor and glory until Jesus comes. I pray in his name. Amen.